Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your DJ, your MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. And joining me is the man who, like the good humor man, he sees everything like this. Because he's your ice cream man. Stop him when he's passing by. Here's my co-host from the left coast. Here's Wayne Fugate. Hola, Ben. I mean, I like a little Van Halen crossover. I did did a little crossover for you. All right. So for this episode, we're joined by a multifaceted musician whose latest project is called Sad Planets. They issued their first record in April of 2019. He's also been a part of Cobra Verde, Death of Samantha, and Sweet Apple. And I think we'll talk about each one of those. He's also a writer for the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper. Please welcome to the podcast, John Pakovic. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Did I say your last name correctly? You know what? I'm pretty. I'm pretty flexible. <laughs> it, so, it's good enough. So how how do you typically pronounce it? Uh, it's Petkovic, but it's it's there's no um, the C has a little marking in the original in in the Serbo-Croatian language, so it doesn't appear in English. It's kind of like our umlaut. Gotcha, Wayne. I I I was I was hoping that I was going to go three weeks in a row with not slaughtering our guest's last name, and I'm I'm totally just messed it up. Yeah. And if you'd have just owned it, he he would have let you have it. I know. I should have just okay. owned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the uh, premise of our podcast fairly simple. We talk about music, but as we do at the beginning of each of our podcasts, we ask the all important question. What T-shirt are you wearing? Let's start first with our guest, John. Okay, I'm wearing a um, it's a it's it's a hamburger chain in in uh, Akron, Ohio, called um, Hamburger Station. It's kind of like their version of White Castle, but they have a. It's funny when we were uh, I was recording this re- this band uh, with this new record and uh, Sad Planets, the record for that, and the other guy, Patrick Carney, knows the hamburger scene. Like Akron is this. It's crazy. It's a small. It's it's a city, but it's a smaller city. But it has the biggest collection that I've seen around the country of locally owned old hamburger chains. And this one is like this kind of low rent type place where you know Patrick would tell me, "Oh yeah, the burgers will make you feel like nauseous." But I um, but I thought they were you know I'm not I don't really eat meat now, but I I did that and and uh, I thought they were they were small and you, if you had a couple, you're you were good. You know if you have like six. Then you're entering the like White Castle territory, you know. Um, but yeah, so then anyways, we'd go to these burger chain. We'd, we'd work, we'd, we'd work on the record, and then go get go get stopping. He'd show me a one burger place and another burger place, and he'd tell me about all these places and stuff, and show me around and give me the histories of all these places. And this place has been around probably since the 19, 1930s, and uh, wow. they have this special sauce. Their special sauce is um, it's a secret, top secret. What it is is basically grease. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, they, they just slap some grease on top of it. That's their special sauce, and that's their secret. So they've never, uh, they never revealed it, but it's basically grease, at least from what I think and what he's seen. You know, it does kind of taste like grease. That that's awesome. So, anyways, right. we'd go to Burger Street, and I went to the burger. And I go, I go take pictures of everything I do. So I would just go, and I just, I like to just take. I always take photos. I do photography also, and uh, so I started taking pictures of this place. And this guy goes, oh, you you must really love this place. I was like, why? Because you have a camera. I go, oh, well, yeah, I like to take pictures, and I like your place. He's like, oh, wow, hold on. Hold on, wait right here. And I go, okay, I don't know why I'm waiting here. And I'm sitting at a table. Actually, I wasn't standing. I was sitting at the table. 
And uh, he runs out to this van and hands me, this is a worker has been wearing this, like the guy who had it. He goes, this workers have been wearing these t-shirts since the beginning. And I have one of the original, like, um, the, it's the white one with red lettering, as opposed to the red ones, with white lettering, which is for the public. So I kind of felt like I was a kind of an uh, honorary employee, you know? Yeah. So, um, I just got the t-shirt and I've been, I happened to be wearing it today and I was thinking, Oh, well, what, what shirt you guys do the, the shirt thing. I go, well, this shirt was very important and instrumental to surveying the kind of the landscape of Akron because it's, it's a, it's a smaller city, but it has, it's like, it's frozen in time. I mean, it's like, there's these, there are chain burgers and burger places and chain places in general, but it's such a small type local mentality to the thing that it's like, they've really retained a lot of their old and they have like, and the hamburger supposedly was discovered in Akron going back to I think 1895 is the date when the, the burger was discovered. I think these, this place called Menchie's ended up forming a patty and that was what qualified as a hamburger. They were, so they're, they're, it's renowned as the hamburger capital of the world. At least they call it that, but I'm pretty sure a lot of other cities call themselves the hamburger capital of the world. Like cities call themselves the capital world of all sorts of things that they might or might not be, but this place actually has a history that they can use to justify the claim, you know? So it was like a big thing, but we were recording this record and I was thinking, you know, we were just like, it was, I, I was born in Akron and I lived there for a year and it was kind of, a, while working on the record, it's kind of like rediscovering, one of the reasons why I wanted to work on this record is like, I wanted to kind of rediscover this, this place that I would go to once in a while and what I was born in and I'd also lived in for a year. So I ended up like, it was like almost like a, a, a tourist with vague recollections, you know, so you kind of so it was it was it was um it was kind of an important thing to me not that the t-shirt is of any value necessarily but it was an important thing to me like oh i got this t-shirt now and i'm like an honorary employee of this town that i was born in and i lived in for a year i never had a job in the town but now i'm kind of having a worker in this town you know you're part of the inner circle now of akron ohio i'm part of the inner circle it's it's really easy like some some elites you need to have like the, the rothschilds and you know, you have to have like certain like uh, access to certain, uh, you know, power and influence. In this case, all you need is the T-shirt. <laughs> Pretty low red. Not the red. It's probably the cheapest entry to an elite club that you'll ever find, you know. There you go. So people go like, oh, my God, you got this T-shirt that you're wearing. You're like, how did you get this? And I had to go to I was like, I just happened to walk into a, place, a burger place with a camera in my hand. <laughs> And and if our and if our listeners don't get anything else out of this episode, that's how you get swag, right? That's just how you get swag. Yeah, yeah, just show up with the camera. Show up with the camera. It's a good, the great the great thing about a camera is that you can kind of like a you have you can kind of be involved and not be involved because you always have an excuse like oh this conversation is getting boring oh excuse me I got to take a picture here. You just kind of walk away with your camera. You know what I mean? It's like having a cat in a way. You know what I mean? <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, how about you, Wayne? I don't think you're going to have quite a good story as uh, as John. It's not, here, but... It is not nearly as good. I'm wearing my Easy Street Records shirt. I got this, uh, gosh, longer ago than I think. I think it was uh, the day my daughter graduated UW. We picked her up and we went, they actually, it's a record store and a cafe. And we went over there and got some breakfast before we headed up to CenturyLink for the graduation. I love that record store, actually. 
Yeah, I even went. I usually get black. That's and then I and I was trying to get out of the trying to break break myself that, and I got the olive drab one with the red star. So it's a uh, oh wow, it's one of my my favorite shirts. Cool. So uh, last week was uh, was my birthday, and uh, my good friend Jeff he alluded to this Wayne on our uh, on our Dulcinea episode that uh, he now has shirts. So I I finally got a Johnson's Bistro Farm to Mouth T-shirt. So I'm wearing that proudly and uh, giving my giving my friend a little 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 plug there. So you can go find that at Jeff Makes Jokes. So wow. Well, you know what? Hey, do you ever wonder? Um, Ben, let me ask you. Do you you know the whole Farm to Mouth thing? I've always wondered. Is like actually it's kind of not true, right? I mean, it's Farm to Table, but right. it's like I've always, when I first heard that term, I thought, my God, they're going to bring me a live chicken and kill it on the table right here in front of me. Because it's actually not, right? It had to be something happened between the farm and the table, right? Right. And that's that's his whole that's his whole bit. He has a whole comedy bit about that. Um, so uh-huh. so he, it should be a bakery, though, because his one big joke is the uh, butter on the chocolate chip cookie. That's true. That, that is the... Uh, that is the the clip that he plays repeatedly on his Instagram. So, yeah, Jeff, you need to you need to switch out your uh, your 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 bits, or get some uh, Jeff's bakery shirts. There you go. All right. Well, uh, John, so you were a referral from one of our guests back in April, the one and only Doug Gillard. So, how far back do you and Doug go back? Uh, we met at a, a at an amusement park. We met, well, we played together in Death of Samantha and in Guided by Voices. I played in Guided by Voices for a while with, with, while Doug was playing in the band, too. And uh, we met at an amusement park, and we both ended up going. It was like some school thing. It was in high school. It was like some school-related uh, type thing. And we were both like, you know, it was like, because in my, in, my, you know, in my high school, I was kind of like, the punk, you know, I, was, I, I always like to say, oh, I was not only part of the punk rock scene, I was the punk rock scene, because no one really was into that kind of music. So, and Doug, who went to Illyria, which is about a town, I was I grew up in Cleveland, and Doug went to a town about, called Illyria, about 45 minutes west of Cleveland, and so he was, went to a town that also, that had a couple other people that were music people that has, in his high school, so we both went to this amusement park, which is like, I don't know, man, there's like thousands of people walking around and eating hamburgers and bur- and uh, hot dogs and cotton candy. And I'm like, oh, wow, this guy looks like he doesn't belong here. And he obviously looked at me and said, wow, this guy looks like he doesn't belong here. So we just started talking out of the blue. It was just, it was really, really odd because you think that, you know, you think out of all these people, you wouldn't just meet someone to end up being in bands with and you'd know for years, many years later. So we ended up um, just noticing one another. And then just start talking about music, and he was really into music. And the thing is, he talked about the Pretender's first album, and it was an album that I really liked. And we just talked about, uh, you know, that record, and we just started talking about records. And it's like, oh, wow, what's your number? Okay, what's your number? So we started a band, like literally, like, like three, three. We started playing together maybe like, no, about six months later in a band, you know, in Cleveland because Doug ended up moving to Cleveland. So it was, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing where a lot of times. It's interesting because you, you find that sometimes even a, of a crowd, I mean, the thing is about music that's interesting. I mean, you guys are so far apart, 
and here you are doing this podcast and you think that it's like it's almost like music is just is is a I don't know if it's a I don't know if it's a, a, a secret way of communicating or maybe it's just a virus. You know what I mean? It only hits certain people in certain parts of the country, but they all end up knowing each other somehow or knowing someone that knows someone or knowing someone that knows someone that knows someone that knows someone. So it can get a little bit uh, yeah, hazy, but we ended up meeting people. We ended up playing in bands and playing in bands and, and keeping contact with one another regularly for, for, you know, 30 years. And, and did he play some on your, your new record as well? No, he didn't. No. Um, no? He did play okay. something on a new Sweet Apple record. He did play something on that. Right. Okay. Okay. Which came so, out two years ago. So what year What year did you guys have that? We met connection? in 1983. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we were both yeah, we in high school. And like I said, we were just wandering around, like, and then stumbling into one another. And then we started playing in a band. And he's the person I play, played with the longest him and the other people in that Samantha, the people I played with the longest and known the longest in music. Right. Right. So, so going back to your conversation about Akron, Ohio. So your, your latest project is called conveniently Akron, Ohio. And that's uh, your project, sad planets with Patrick Carney of the black keys. So yes. tell me how that collaboration happened. Uh, other than, you know, he he may have found out that you were born in Akron. You do, so you do have a little bit of that that tie, even though you're a, you're. I guess do you consider yourself a Cleveland guy? Yeah, you know, it's like it's interesting because Ohio is a state. It's kind of like um, there is a kind of camaraderie that isn't. I mean, not necessarily. Wow, we're like it's not like uh, don't mess with Texas type mentality because in Ohio it's like don't mess with Texas. And then it brings people together in Cleveland. It's in Ohio. It's like, oh, you're a mess and I'm a mess. So we all kind of end up knowing each other. And so you have people from various cities, like Greg Dooley, he's from Cincinnati. And he's also like, there's a, even a different, very different part of Ohio. Cause like Cleveland is kind of like a, almost like a socialist Republic in the middle of Ohio. And I mean, except it's not in the middle, it's actually the Northern part, but, um, but everyone, there's a, a interesting camaraderie there between people that are that are from the state and a lot of people that you know that you end up oh wow it's cool to hook up with someone that's from another state and you start playing music with or you start doing something with or you're involved with a project with and you find out oh yeah well I was born in Columbus you know so there's there is an interesting thing because it's a city it's a state that is kind of in between it's perceived it's like by the people on the east coast they think Columbus oh, I mean Ohio oh, that's next to Nebraska right and then you've got people on um, on uh, on the West Coast. I think it's a suburb of New York City, you know. So it's a, it's kind of a, uh, a it, while it's seen as being heartland America or Midwest America, it has always had kind of various relationships. Like New York and Cleveland, and Cleveland always had various musical connect, connections. Going back to like the Dead Boys, who ended up coming from Cleveland and then moving to New York. Television, who played their first show out of New York in Cleveland you know, um, bands that were like very popular in Cleveland that were also like, like the Ramones first show out of outside of New York was in uh, Youngstown, Ohio. And that's where they met the dead boys. And then the dead boys brought up, they brought the dead boys to play in New York. And then the dead boys moved to New York and Terubu would got before they were, while they were not, you know, playing in Cleveland, they started getting this acclaim in New York city, you know? So it was, it was an interesting place that had a lot of these kind of connections with one another, you know, with the interesting place they had connections with different parts of the world. I mean, different parts of the United States, though to us, I guess it's kind of when you're from Ohio, it's kind of like, oh, that's the world, you know, because he's like, 
definitely not. Uh, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere sometimes, you know. <laughs> right. So so let's let's chat about uh, let's chat about the the Sad Planets record. So I, I would have to say my favorite track on the record is Yesterday Yesterday Girls. It's a fun little rocker. Uh-huh. And with the drumming on that one, and after I found out what you uh, what you picked as your record to discuss, uh, I totally understood some of that '60s influence on that particular song. Is that kind of the uh-huh. the, the vibe that you were going for with with that? Yeah, it's interesting because me and like Patrick and I, we never played together in a band ever. I mean, we his uncle is Ralph Carney, who played. Are you familiar with Ralph Carney? Uh, I was after I read the Wikipedia or, uh, yeah, I, I did a little research on that. Yeah, he was, uh, he played with Tom Waits. He played in a band called Tin Huey from Akron. He played yeah. the B-52s. He's done like in- crazy solo stuff, insanely talented musician. And I was walking, again, this is how I, you know, I met Patrick. I met him 20 years ago. I was happening walking around the um, Akron uh, Art Museum. And uh, he goes, hey, uh, are you John? I go, yeah, I think so. And, um, which is <laughs> sometimes I'm not sure. Who's and, asking? Uh, and I was like, walk around and he goes, uh, man, you know, you played with my uncle. He played on, on death of Samantha and on Cobra Verde records. And um, you know, I'm his nephew, Patrick, uh, Pat, I think he introduced himself as Pat. Yeah. Um, but you know how people get older, they start adding more and more like letters to their first name, you know, like Dave becomes David, Pat becomes Patrick. So, we ended up, uh, so we just like ended up like becoming friends. And then like 10 years later, he was like, uh, you know, we started talking about music. And, and as it turned out, the Black Keys had an album that came out. It was called Brothers, that one. I'm not sure which one it was. But they had a record and I just started doing Sweet Apple at that point. And we had an album coming out. And, and so Black Keys just got back from a tour. And I was going to be, I put out a Sweet Apple record and I was about to go on tour. And, um, and we had like some time between this, like three, three months where we had like, he goes, man, I got nothing to do. I go, what about you? I go, I got nothing to do. He goes, oh, why don't you come to the studio with this jam? So I ended up going down there and, um, we were like, okay. Uh, so I thought he was going to, I was going to play on some stuff that he was working on. Just have me play some guitar or something like that. He goes, I go, oh, so what do you want me to play? It's like, well, I don't know. I don't have anything to play. Why don't you just come up with some songs so on the spot? We kind of came up with a lot of this stuff and. Like it's interesting when you're playing with somebody you you know but you never played with, and in this case we uh you know we started we didn't I mean I knew kind of vaguely what he liked I knew musically what he liked and he knew what I liked just because of the I'm not like I've ever it goes hey what kind of music do you like you just kind of pick it up, and uh, so we ended up started just started working on music and we found out that we had a lot of the similar kind of things that we liked and the '60s music was stuff that we really liked like the Electric Prunes, you know um with like Love like the association. And um, so then we just started recording. So I think maybe that has something to do with it, but it was never, but we kind of went into this not really having a plan at all, which is kind of rare that you get, because you oftentimes when you get together with a band, you, 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 it's like they, kids in school, they just meet up and they go, Oh man. Yeah. No one else is really into music. What do you like? Well, I don't like Elvis. Okay. Wow. Well, I like, you know, the sex pistols or I like Led Zeppelin. Or I like Black Sabbath, and it's like, well, it doesn't really matter what people like. They tend to, 
if you like music, they'll kind of find a way to start a band because the problem is very few people really around them really are crazy about music. So in this case, we ended up starting a band. But, you know, so any band that starts in high school, they get to practice. They practice, get together to jam in a basement. We didn't have a basement to jam, and we started recording right away. You know, so it was a very interesting, um, very interesting experience for me, cause something that I've never really done before. Because the other bands I've all been in, I've been been in with other people, we just do, I, I'd had some some involvement with them in, in in some other capacity, you know. And while I'd known Pat for ten years, I didn't I didn't know. I mean, it just like it's kind of cold going in there. So maybe we just naturally gravitated toward those similar things that we liked, cause it was a collaborative event, you know. Yeah, and. and- you know, after listening to Two Loves Forever Changes, so there were a couple couple songs on Sad Planets that kind of stood out of, I kind of felt a little bit of that Arthur Lee influence, like uh, Falling Into the Arms of a Refugee. I felt a, a 60s vibe to that, Not of This mm-hmm. World. Could also hear a little bit of that influence on that. Is that is that fairly accurate? That uh, that kind of rubbed off a little bit on on some of those songs. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I kind of like I didn't I didn't think about it at the time, but it's kind of like I said. I think we just didn't really have, you know, we just kind of were almost like you're picking basic things that everyone that, they, that the other two the other person will like. You know, I mean we weren't really, you know, I mean he, he's a big fan of Devo as another band. Now there's not that many Devo probably references on there even though there's like these synthesizers and brian eno we like and there's like brian eno type synthesizers going on here and there and devo's um, but another yeah, the ohio most... connection as well right yeah he was another one. yeah yeah totally yeah. yeah yeah they're from akron also yeah and the cramps i mean the cramps so it's like we both we all the thing is interesting about ohio is it's people that have ambition to do that are musically ambitious but don't really have much ambition to do anything with music in many cases, because it's not like we've had, like there's never been a big bunch of bands from Cleveland from this area that have become really huge. So oftentimes you get people that are just kind of do, do anything. You know, like, Oh, they, they want to, they get excited working on a record and then they're done with the record. They go, like, Oh, wow. What, well, what do we do now? We don't really know anyone. We really don't know what to do with it. So, I think that like Devo is you have these kind of these damaged bands like Devo, the Cramps, uh, Perubu, like you know, like I was saying, and and even you know, the Pretenders, which was you know uh, a UK band it, it basically, with with Chrissy Hine, who was from Ohio, from Akron also, you know. Yeah. So, but yeah. you had like people that are just trying to like, it's, it's it is it's ambitious, but people that are almost too self-deprecating to be successful in many ways. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know that that was going to be one of the other topics of conversation because, you know, after listening to Sad Planets and, you know, I'm looking looking at, uh, you know, kind of the traction that you all have had on Spotify and it's, you know, nowhere nowhere near what Black Keys, for instance, is is uh, is getting as far as listens on Spotify. So, you know, how does a 
how does a band like Sad Planets or Sweet Apple or, you know, even a, a Guided by Voices who has these nice little followings, how do you take that to that next level where you're, you know, you're the Black Keys? I mean, he, Pat, Pat and Dan are selling out really large venues. I know they're going to be here. Yeah, no doubt later in Orlando and the, and you know they're playing the basketball arena and and they'll probably they'll probably end up selling out that place. So yeah. So yeah, so so how does a band like the Black Keys become that popular but yet a Sweet Apple for instance. I you know I uh I really I really dug your 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 last the last album um that that Sweet Apple did. But yet I'm not hearing it on, you know, a couple of the college stations that I do listen to, you know, like yeah. KXB up there in Seattle. I'm not, I'm not hearing it. It's not getting that traction. So, you know, to your point of, you know, the ambition thing. Yeah. You know what? I, we just kind of like always play, like I always find it. It's like, it's like having, um, you know, it's like you have like one business and you keep open up a business and then you, that business kind of, Oh, this business ain't going so good. I better to start another one. So that's why I'm in like five bands. <laughs> you know what I mean? it's like, so, but the thing is, it's interesting. You think like, I mean, it's rare. The, the black keys are by, are definitely the exception and they're the exception around the country. I mean, they're, they're, they're like, you know, probably what, what the biggest rock band in the country, maybe, you know? So in this case, they're on a, at a different level. And I, I have no idea how they got to where they got. I know they've worked really hard. I know they've worked, they've worked really hard and they toured and they played tons of shows and everything else. And, you know, it's like, uh, you know, but still it's like, it's just, sometimes it just happens. You come at a certain time and place and it works. And it's almost like they explain, it's hard to even figure it out. I don't like Patrick has no idea either. I mean, he knows that they work, they work really hard. I mean, that's what he yeah. thinks. I mean, and that's true. They work really hard. They've toured like all over the place. Yeah. But you could say the same thing about your, your bandmate in Sweet Apple, Jay Mascus. I mean, the, the, that yeah. dude works, works harder than, you know, totally. any, yeah, he worked anyone hard. in the in the industry, and yet, you know, again, he's got a really nice little little following, very rabid following. Mm -hmm. But you know, when I when I tell you know people that I that I associate with about Dinosaur Junior, they just kind of look at me like, who, who, who are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. It's like that, but you know, I think. In a lot of ways, it's just like, I don't know, I mean, it's like if you, like, I've never, I've had the good fortune of never losing money on a record, you know? And I just look at it, it's like, man, it's like, I put out like 18 albums, maybe, something like that, I've been, or been involved, not that I've put them out, but I've been involved and played on, been in bands that put out that many records. And I just, I'm, I'm thankful that it, my, my kind of like threshold for success is very different in that I, I'm kind of happy that people just want to listen to it and I don't have to like, and I'm, I can still play music and people will still ask like this, you know, they, they want to buy the record, like they want it, they want to check out a record or they just, or they share a video or they, or they go listen to it online, whatever. It's kind of like, it's a different thing. You know, like almost like I'd never imagined playing. I mean, none of the bands that I even liked, I was thinking back, I was like, oh my God, I was like, oh yeah, I really love my, all my favorite bands were all these big success stories, like the Iggy and the Stooges, the Velvet Underground, you know, Leonard Cohen, which is Leonard Cohen later got huge, but Leonard Cohen was just kind of like a, you know, many ways let's say a marginal artist yeah. but you know but not he's never he never played some big arenas either you know yeah. so you just kind of like you almost like yeah you know just never think that i'm gonna be like 
it's just like my ideas for success were like based on people who were failures <laughs> in many ways. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of Leonard Cohen, so one of the things I was going to ask you about was the uh, Cobra Verde covers record. Um, so uh -huh. you guys did you guys did a record called Copycat Killers, and your cover of Cohen's "So Long, Marianne" just uh -huh. proved the point that I made years ago that Leonard Cohen is fantastic when somebody else sings his songs. Uh, yeah. Really really dig that dig that version there's a really oh cool thanks. I, I i i will tell i will tell all the listeners you need to go check out that record just for two songs uh besides the 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 cohen song your donna summer cover of i feel love is excellent I, I, I love your guys' take on New Order's Temptation. That's also... Uh, oh, cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you know, the thing yeah. is, we did that record. We did that record where basically we just wanted to go into the studio. We, were, we just got a, a studio, and we started trying to figure out how to make everything sound. And I had this idea that, like, like on the, the So Long, Marianne, on the, that version, I wanted every verse to introduce a new guitar. And so there's new guitars. There's probably, like, a total of maybe, like, uh, 16 guitars on that record. Maybe Maybe... 20 on that song okay. where it was just almost experiment and I didn't, and it was the idea was we weren't even going to put that out I mean we were just going to like okay let's just record a bunch of covers and with the uh with the new order it's like I wanted to have you know I always thought that like and what I liked about Leonard Cohen I always thought that songs to me the idea of the, the group, best thing about a song is a song that anyone could cover but it's but the the original version is a personal it still has a personal quality about it you know what I mean yeah. I mean for yeah, instance yeah. I mean a lot of people have covered the national anthem. They go to a sporting event and you got all sorts of people covering it. And right. while they might do their various versions of it and they might have ululating like howls and dragging out notes to the for like eight seconds and you wish to just shut up, it doesn't work. I mean, because the national anthem is the national anthem and it's kind of like if people want it to stay true to that, usually they say, oh my God, quit with the moaning. You know, that's usually the response you get. But a song like, I think a Leonard Cohen song, what's good about a Leonard Cohen song is there's enough space there. Like the New Order song, I was thinking is, I always try to think of songs that I like are songs that are kind of incomplete in a way that you can actually, you're singing along to it, but you're singing along a different part to it. You're singing along a harmony that's not there. You're singing along a, a different, like melody pops in your head, a different guitar thing pops into your head. Like Black Sabbath, you can't really do that. I love Black Sabbath. But Black Sabbath, I can't imagine a harmony there. I can't imagine another guitar song. It's all very monolithic, you know, and it's very there's not that much room to, to navigate. You you guys, your your take on that is you took the keyboard completely out of it and then you just did, you know, your your vocals as as the keyboard part. Yeah. Good good stuff. So it's like, you... I, I always but I like I just that's kind of the the idea of covers is something that I like when you have a song where you're actually not doing that song and you're trying to like add something to it or subtract something to it 
I mean, yeah. we, like I think that the uh, new order has subtracted some things and added some things. So I think it's kind of ideally that's kind of what what makes it interesting. Otherwise, you're just doing the same thing. You're just basic cop copying. You might as well just let the other song stand on its own. You know? Right. So uh, did you ever consider a song by Love to be on that covers record? No, uh, I never thought of that because I think that Love is is a is a, is a band that has that is so kind of defined as a in a time and place. And the interesting thing I was thinking about that album is, um, I was uh, thinking about that album and that, uh, you know, you think about the three albums that came out that year. You think of the uh, uh, the, the Beach Boys, you think of Pet Sounds, you think of uh, Sgt. Pepper, and then you think of of Arthur Lee and um, of, of Love and uh, and I think that, that that record to me is, I like the, the Pet Sounds is probably right up there too. But I think that it's like, um, I think with Love, I just thought that that was a record that was just so unique and so different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, a- anything else, Wayne? Uh, I know you've been listening to Cobra Verde uh, all day, doing a little research. Anything you wanted to ask? Uh, John, as it relates to Cobra Verde? Um, no, I got caught up all day listening to Strung Out on Jarno. I, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I interviewed Arthur Lee for the for a newspaper. For, uh, for the, for, I, I don't write about music. I really write about music. But one guy, I thought, oh, cool. He's, I want to interview him. And I, I printed something out, and he said uh, he said about it being, because the, the record being so unique. And here's what he told me. He goes, there's Jesus, Hitler, and Beethoven, and there's Forever Changes. It's one of a kind. There are new, no two like it. It's my Mona Lisa. And I was thinking this, it's kind of like it is set in stone as being its thing. I don't think it can be covered. But I'm sorry, Wayne. Go ahead to what you're saying. No, no, I was just uh, getting ready for this. I've been listening to, obviously, Forever Changes for about a week. And then today I was try- I went, I listened to sad pl- some sad plants. I uh, just landed uh, was the one I really yeah. liked. It has kind of a Ziggy Stardust uh, feel to it. Put your lights have And then I also noticed it kind of has that uh, acoustic guitar playing with the lead, with the electric lead over it, which is, uh, I don't think they do. I, they do really super well in this album. I just, I think they should have done it even more. But uh, I got, I went, I got caught on uh, Death of Samantha listening to uh, Strung Out on Jargon. Um, and I was really enjoying that. And that made me feel good because I know uh, Ben has a question about Toto's Africa. And I feel very confident that uh, <laughs> I, I, my man, I, you, you're the man for this for this question. Yeah. Okay. So we, we've been asking all of our guests their opinion of Toto's Africa because Wayne Wayne hates that song. So uh, yeah. so, so so I'm going to I'm going to throw this question out to you, John. So your opinion Toto's Africa, good, ba- good, 
Good song or bad song? Oh, it didn't make sense to me because it, it might sound ridiculous, and I'm not trying to even be like a comedic about this, but I thought I never associated Toto with Africa. I associated Toto with the Wizard of Oz. And <laughs> it just, it was just like too different. I mean, geographically, it's like, wait a second. You guys are taking this dog and you're taking him into Africa. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, this is, doesn't make sense to me. And you know, where's the wizard? You know the song I mean? should have been called and, Kansas. Uh, I think, what, the Kansas? Yeah. Interesting, but it's an interesting point you raise. And it's kind of how, do you ever notice how bands that are named after geographic places are the worst bands in the world? Kansas, well, uh, there's Sticks, which is a geographic place in the Bible, you know? Uh, there is... Um, what is uh, the other one? Uh, uh, Asia. Asia. It's like yeah. these guys, you got these guys from these good bands and stuff like that. They got together in Asia. It's like, okay, let's find this place, this big geographic entity, Boston. Boston took, what, six years on its uh, second album because they were like trying to figure out how to, how to wire together guitar effects, guitar pedals. I mean, who takes that long to work on guitar pedals? You know what I mean? Well, then it took so them I've like 13 years for the third album. So Yeah. Yeah, it's just like you might as you know. It was like the, the the band's named after geographic places. Oh, Europe! You know the final countdown. That's Funny. terrible. It's like you know they say um, you know lying like the you know mis bad like a, what do you call it misleading advertising. I mean they call it the final countdown and it goes on forever. <laughs> you know I mean? All right, I'm going to assume that that John, your definitive answer on Toto's Africa is it's a bad song. I'm just, you know, it's like, it's so weak. I can't even, I couldn't even think of it as a song because it was a, to me, it was a joke. It's like when I heard Toto in Africa, I, I could not even listen to the thing because I just, I go, this doesn't make sense. All right. I mean, well, you can't be taking Toto and, and saying this is Africa. So Wayne, you now have two on, on your board. I'm, st I'm still leading you. I'm still leading 7-2. John, you have now become Wayne, one of Wayne's favorite guests uh, just because of that. So. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a good song, but I just can't listen to the thing. You know what I mean? It's not. It's like, you know, you meet someone and go, wow, wow, this cool person looks so cool. And then you end up like sitting in a room and the person's talking on and on and on. It's like, get the f out of here. I can't be around this. You know, so it's kind of the thing. That's 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 kind of the thing with it. Toto. Maybe it's a good song. I just couldn't get past the the, 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 the band name and, and the album, album title or the song. Well, I, I have listened to it and it makes me feel exactly like you just described. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, give me some Tin Man. You know what I mean? <laughs> All you know right. I mean? Well, Where's well, the damn Scarecrow? <laughs> well, John, before we jump into uh, to your uh, your pick, anything else you want to, uh, to, to, to plug while you have the opportunity? Anything you want to promote besides Sad Planet? You know what? Whenever I try to promote something, I only, I only end up subverting it. So probably not. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's let's dig into here. So you picked the 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 record "Forever Changes" by the '60s band Love, and I know that you said the uh, you know you were still trying to choose a record up until about a week ago. What were some of the other records that you were thinking about? You know, I was actually going to email you only because I thought that, like, because it was, came out, uh, well, I was thinking as well, what, what, it came out in 71, but I go, you know, it started, it was part of in the middle of the Rolling Stones, uh, that, that right around uh, in that 50 years frame that began with the uh, Beggar's Banquet. I, go, I was thinking of picking Sticky Fingers, which is 
I think my favorite Rolling Stones record. Mine too. And I was like, yeah, it was just, it's man, it's brilliant. I mean, the guitar sounds sway, the horn sounds, you know, it's just like, it's such a great record in so many ways, you know? And um, I go, you know, I, but then I was thinking, oh, you know, this is, uh, it was, uh, I mean, I didn't, honestly, I was going to email you a couple of days ago, but I go, I don't want to f- these guys up now saying, hey, can we change this or this thing? They've probably been listening to that damn love record now. <laughs> Well, we'll 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 have you back on, John. We'll have you back on. We talk about the sticky fingers. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I I'm sorry to ramble, but I was listening to this. You know, the you listen, you know, Beggar's Banquet. You guys are familiar with that record, obviously, right? Oh yeah, oh, that's oh, that's yeah. my favorite and Rolling so, Stones record. Yeah, I lo- and I love that record too. But you know, the interesting thing is, um, if you listen to Sympathy for the Devil, which is kind of seen as being the re- the song that is so jarring to people because it has that really bright uh, kind of like b- bright, biting um, guitar sound, the guitar lead on Sympathy for the Devil, and it's got this attack on it, and he's pulling off chords and, and pulling off notes, Keith is, and, and I go, you know, it's interesting, man, it's such a revolutionary guitar sound, but, and I hope I'm not taking it down some blind detour, but the guy that produced that record is Jimmy Miller, who also produced... Uh, Dear Mr. Fantasy, and if you listen to that traffic song, and I thought I associated it for so long, Keith Richards has been credited with getting the guitar sound for Sympathy for the Devil, but if you listen to Dear Mr. Fantasy and that guitar lead that Steve Winwood plays, that is that same guitar sound. You know, and it has this bite, it has these twisting of notes, and that really that piercing kind of like a cutting sound that is like, I, I should have, I mean, how did Steve Winwood, how does, you know, uh, you know, Dear Mr. Fantasy, how come that doesn't get the the attention, the credit that it deserves as being kind of the initiator of this sound that you hear on Beggar's Banquet with, uh, you know, Sympathy for the Devil or on Stray Camp Blues. They're both on those two songs. You have that really biting guitar sound. If you guys, at some point, go back and check those those songs out back to back. It's yeah. uh, Dear Mr. Fantasy and then those two Stone songs. The guitar tone okay. is like, it's Steve Winwood, you know? Interesting. All right. Definitely will do that. So we ready I hope I'm not in. sabotaging your show like I've sabotaged my career here <laughs> <laughs> with my rambling throughout my whole life. <laughs> not well, at all. If it wasn't your rambling, it would be either my rambling or, um, you know, occasionally Wayne will go on a long diatribe, but it's usually yeah. me that's rambling. So it's, it's all good. So who's the play-by-play guy in the color commentator? Do you guys have this defined? Yeah, I'm the yeah. color guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm the play-by-play. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. All right, uh, so let's jump into Revisiting Forever Changes by Love. Uh, as a reminder, our scoring is based on the number of songs on the record. So, Wayne, how many songs are on this record? 11. So that means our top song is going to get 11 points. Next favorite song, 10, on down to lowest score of 1. So before we jump into the each of the songs, I will tell you, and, and I'm and, – We'll we'll see how embarrassed I am after I tell you this. So this is how I know of the band Love, because um, I I'm 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 definitely not a '60s music connoisseur other than you know Beatles, uh, early early Who, some Kinks. I know this band because the Hooters on their 1985 album Nervous Night included the song "She Comes in Color" on that record. And that is uh-huh. a song that was written by Arthur Lee and performed by Love. 
And I uh-huh. know that I've heard Alone Again or somewhere as well. Does anybody know, was that song used in like a movie or a TV ad or something? Because uh, as soon as I did hear it, there was definitely a memory there. But I, I don't remember if it if it has been been used in uh I don't TV I don't think so. I I've never, I've never heard it. Maybe it has, but I've never heard it. Or is it just that I maybe heard a song that sounded a lot like it from the 60s, you know, something from the Birds or Jefferson Airplane or early Grateful Dead or something? Maybe, you know what, at times the the record cuz it kind of is its own thing, but at times it does remind me of a little bit of Sid Barrett Pink Floyd. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying good, I'm not saying that it's imitating imitative of that, but at times that and even at times of the Who, I thought that at times of the Who, there's the songs that have like the real like the kind of the driving strumming on the acoustic guitar reminds me a little bit of Pete Townsend playing. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely get the early Who stuff. Yeah, that. And and I would say that I also felt a little bit of a Doors influence, and that is. Because this this was co-produced by Bruce Botnick, who yes, uh-huh. was instrumental for the Doors' "L.A. Woman," so he yep. had take, he had taken over production for "L.A. Woman." And uh, did he need play bass on L- on "L.A. Woman" the album too? I think he did. Yeah, I think I think he did, and he's get he's got some other credits as well. I did look look up. Uh, Botnick, so he he was an assistant engineer. Speaking of of Rolling Stones, he was a assistant engineer for Let It Bleed. Um, he also mm-hmm. produced Eddie Money's first two albums. He uh, also produced and how's this for uh, one of these things is not like the other. He co-produced Kenny Loggins' 1982 album High Adventure. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> yeah. So how's that? I've never heard that record, but I mean I've heard of Kenny Loggins. Yeah, well, just think Kenny Loggins' 1980s. Yeah. And that's all you really need to, to know. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to right. think of Kenny Loggins, but <laughs> I can't. Uh, yeah. All right, so so Love, um, so this was, what number record was this for, for, for Love? The third. Um, this was third record. Um, and they were, they had a minor hit, they had a minor hit in what 66 with 66 a, with a cover of Burt Bacharach's My Little Red Book. In fact, I saw a performance uh, that they did on American Bandstand, for instance. I, uh-huh. I never would have would have expected Love to be on American Bandstand, but there they were. Yeah, they were. Uh-huh. I think they were like they were seen as being an important band. I mean, well, you know, the, Arthur Lee was a, a star basketball player at Crenshaw High School in Los Angeles. Oh, and um, yeah, are you guys yeah. basketball fans at all? Oh yeah, and uh, it was like there's this guy Baron Davis. You know, Baron Davis is yes. yes. So I was uh, I was happy to have dinner. Me and I was just having dinner with Baron Davis. He was in, lived in Cleveland for a while, and um, he was like talking about you know some of these basketball players that, and I go, oh, yeah, you know. Is you know you know Arthur Lee and and uh, you know I thought figured all these Los Angeles bands I thought he'd like and because um, he's really into music you know and I was like I go Arthur Lee he was uh you know in, in love and he didn't know love and he goes my God I got to get that what how do I know him I go well he was a star basketball player at Crenshaw High School I go that's it people talked about how great of a basketball player this guy was because Baron Davis is a big huge I mean not just a player but he's also a really big 
student of the game and the lo- all the local guys. So he ended up goes, and I had like, two copies of the record. I go, hey man, here's uh, I got two in my, I have like, dude, I have this record. I must have like, because I lose everything. And I have like all these copies of this record of all kinds of records. I mean, I got like, I lose everything all the time. So I just gave him a CD. I go, hey, I got a CD of this record. Check it out. And he was really into it. And I mean, it's, I think that, um, I don't even know where I, I'm not even, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but Baron Davis is a really big, big fan of this record because, but he was like prompted to like it because he knew of Arthur Lee as a, as a basketball player. Cool. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Uh, let's, let's dig into the, the, the record. Here is the first track. This is alone again, or. And this is going to be the first of two tracks that were written by Brian McLean. Uh, Brian is uh, one of the guitarists, correct? Yes. And so, Wayne, we've actually talked about one of Brian's siblings. Um, so his half-sister is none other than Maria McKee, who we talked about in our Counting Crows episode. Yeah, so there's oh, wow. Yeah, so there's your, there's your Maria reference. Um, oh, wow. And Brian, Brian's going to handle co-vocals on this. We'll talk about the second of his two tracks coming up. Um, and I already brought up the other 60s band comparisons. Um, so was Love one of the first, if not the first, to kind of include a horn section into the rock band? I know it was already a very much an R&B type of thing, but wasn't yeah. super prevalent in rock bands unless I just really don't know my 60s music history, which could be the case. I, uh, you know what? Interesting thing is you mentioned Burt Bacharach. And I, I, as I was listening back to this record, I thought of Burt Bacharach. And I thought because of the horn sections at times, reminded me of Burt Bacharach. I can, to- I can totally see that. Totally see that. All right. Who wants to tell me uh, about the first first song on the on the record? I'll, I'll go. Um, I just one thing. Uh, this record definitely took. It's not a, a record that you can get into the first listen. I mean, when I first the first time through, I was like, "Oh my God, what have I gotten myself into?" Um, <laughs> you definitely have to listen to it a couple of times, and as you as you do that, it starts to you start to be able to hear some of the other stuff. Um, I know this from listening to this record. I'm not a huge fan of Brian McLean. Um, I think his voice, I, I, it's not that it's bad. It's that Arthur Lee has a very, has a much more unique voice. Um, and it also, he could, Arthur Lee seems to be able to change, change his tone and almost, and sound even like almost like a different person. Um, and also Brian McLean's lyrics, while they're much more straightforward and easier to figure out, that's not always a lot of fun. Uh, but I thought this, this record, this, this song had a, I liked it has like a Spanish style guitar, which uh, kind of made me kind of gave it. They're a Southern California band. It kind of gave it a Southern California feel, uh, and especially when the the mariachi horns kind of come in, um, oh, yeah, in a couple totally. different spots. It didn't. They didn't overdo it so that it sounded like La Cucaracha or anything. They just it gave it this different, this really like Southern California, uh, a vibe. 
What's interesting you say that, because the thing that struck me was when I hear that there's this flamencoish guitar that comes in, and then the horns and the strings, they're all so well put together. That's why I started, I, I wonder if it was like, who actually did this arranging? Because it is classic. It is out of the kind of the, the Burt Backrack songbook, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it All took right. me a couple of listens to realize there's not a lot of electric guitar on this, which, I mean, rock and roll is pretty much centered around the the electric guitar. And this is with only, a, I mean, when they do it, it works really great. They have the acoustic guitar, and then they play that electric lead over the top of it. Um which I don't know how much, I mean, I, I don't know that they invented that, but they definitely uh, used it to their advantage here. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, so I'm going to give this a nine. This is uh this is one of my more favorite songs on the, on the record. How about you, Wayne, your, your score on I, this? I gave it a six. This is one that I, li <laughs> like I said, I listened to a few, it took me a few times to start to kind of get into it. And then I listened to it a few more times and then I listened to it just before the podcast when I'm finalizing my notes. And I, if, if I wasn't as good a friend I, as I am, I would, I would redo my scoring a little bit. This one though, um, it kind of came off. Like I say, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of Brian McLean's voice um, as, as it compares to Arthur Lee's. And so that dropped it down. Um, I gave this a six. Gotcha. I gave it a six too. All right. All right. So moving on, uh, second song is A House Is Not A Motel. So real to touch, to smell, to feel, to know what you are here. And the streets are paved with gold, and if someone else here, you can call my name. You can call my name. I hear you calling my name. Wayne, since I know your score, how about you get us started with uh, your analysis on this song? I I I dug this song. It has a it, this in this one they they use that uh, big acoustic you know guitar with this you know this real big fast strum and then some electric lead over the top of it. And his voice has this uh, kind of this darkness to it, almost and it's like almost a little bit sinister. And like I say, when I was reading the lyrics. I, I first, you know, it's talking about streets of gold and call my name. And I'm kind of thinking of it as he's singing like from God. But I, as it got towards the end and there was water turning to blood and stuff like that, and, and that little sinister kind of tinge to his voice made me think of Satan. But it just got, it had this, uh, I love that, that uh, the groove with the, with the acoustic and the electric guitar. And then that, that little sinister, uh, that little evil tinge to his voice. Okay. Excellent. You know, it's interesting. I would, uh, this one, I thought that the, uh, when I, and it's funny because I don't have it as necessarily a highly scored song on the record because I'm just a big fan of like all these songs. So to me, it's like hedging it. It's like all the, it's all like a matter of like I, a lot of these songs, if I were to rate them, it'd be between nine and tens on all of them, you know? But I thought what I really liked about this one, I thought that it starts, he reminds me of a disaffected crooner. Like it, it almost starts with a pre rock era crooner type type voice and then he just uh, starts goes out with a scream and then the, the, you got these 
these electrics to come in. And I thought that it reminded me of like, a, if you took a, a, a garage rock band and told it to play folk rock, that's kind of what I thought of this one. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good analogy for it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anything else you, uh, you touched a little on the, the, the lyrics, Wayne. So I think we're, I think we're good there. So why don't we, uh, why don't we grab some scores? So Wayne, your score. I gave this an 11. This was the one that I was, uh, I kept coming. I don't, if I had to re-rank it again, I, I, I think it would still be 11. Um, but, uh, I just, I gravitated towards it. Uh, each listen, I, I look forward to this one coming up. All right. And then, uh, John, how about for you? For a house is not a motel. Yes. Yeah. I meant two. Okay. And then I'm giving it a five. So we're, we're all over the place as far as the scoring for this one. So, all right. Third song is Ann Morrigan, and that is all one word. And if you see and Morrigan, then you will know and Morrigan, for you can see. Is it safe to say that Ann Morrigan is the name of a girl? I, I, that's what I initially thought too. But as I listened to the song a couple times and read the lyrics, and then uh, I did read something about um, he had a heroin addiction. And when you read the lyrics with uh, that, um, and then just the word Ann Morrigan, because I thought it was cool. Like that's what he... I thought it's a slightly misogynistic, but to put to have that as a female's voice, uh, name, I thought it was interesting. But then as I continued to, as I read the lyrics while I listened to the song, then I wasn't so sure that it wasn't about the horse. Uh, okay, I can, I can see that. Uh, do you guys know any of the, the background info on this as far as production goes? No, not really. I thought that the thing is about this one, I thought that the lyrics, while I, I, I kind of appreciated the, um, it seemed like almost like a, an ode to uh, access and obsession maybe that you keep needing something and you keep needing something. But, and I thought while I liked the premise of it, I thought the lyrics did have a bit of a kind of a sentimentality about it. And then the strings were a little bit overwrought too. I thought, so I, I, and I, again, I'm, I'm shading this because I'm a big fan of all these, but I love the acoustic guitars and I love the chord, the cordings on this song, the way the chords are played. Yeah. So, so a little of the, the info that I read on this was, so as they were starting the recording process, um, I guess there were some internal conflicts and Botnick then enlisted essentially the wrecking crew. So I looked at the credits on the song. So you got Carol Kay, who's playing bass, you got Don yeah. Randy who's playing keys. You got, uh, Hal Blaine, who's playing the drums on this, and so they're they're credited for the the you know the background for this, and I guess the rest of the band was like, um, we're gonna lose our role, we're gonna lose our place in in this uh, in this band. So 
I think that that ignited a fire under under the band to to actually finish the record because that's the only credits um, for you know the entire Wrecking Crew. I think they do play a little bit on Daily Planet as well, if I if I remember correctly on the some of the research I did. But um, you know, John, you've never experienced any band friction before, right? That never happened. I've never experienced any band harmony. It's only friction. <laughs> the thing is, you know, if there is no, if there is no Satan, there, if there's no evil, there could be no good. And if, at, at some point you kind of fall in love with friction because that's kind of like the, the regular state of things because it's, there, there's never any harmony. Then you kind of come to accept the friction and say, oh, well, this is how it's supposed to be, you know? Right. right. And dysfunction becomes function. There you go. And, and that's where the creative process goes, right? Uh, that's what they say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so John, I wanted to I wanted to touch back on the whole strings thing. So I brought up the horn section thing earlier. Is is this one of the earlier songs that that uses the strings? I mean, is there are there some other bands that did it earlier than Love? I can't. I think it was it's kind of interesting. I think with a lot of this, um, with the strings on this record, it reminds me of you know, some, almost like they, they exported some string arrangements from more sophisticated pop songs and they, 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 they imported it into rock music. I think yeah. on this, on this particular song, I thought that the strings were a little overwrought and kind of overwhelming on this, on the song. And maybe that's because there, there was, they were dealing with a, a skeleton. I didn't even know that the wrecking crew was involved with this one. You know, Wayne, we we discussed Neil Young's Harvest on one of our earlier episodes, and I think we agreed that the strings didn't really work for you know the two songs that they did. You know, A Man Needs a Maid, for instance. Um, I know you and I both kind of gave that low scores, and I got scrutinized by a couple of listeners who told me I was wrong with my score, but that's neither here nor there. And because sometimes it works. Like, like for instance, I, I really dig Tuesday Afternoon by the Moody Blues, and I know that that's probably not a popular opinion for, for rock music fans because they would say Moody Blues isn't really rock. But it works for me for, for that. And it does I, – I think the strings do work for a couple songs on this record. Um, I think that, to your point, John, if they would have maybe skilled the, the strings – back a little bit more on this i probably would have rated this song a little bit higher than i did um i still yeah. like this i still like the song but um yeah I, I would i would agree with the sentiment that i think that you know they they overdid a little bit on the strings and and based off of what i know with your score i think you would agree with that sentiment yeah totally i thought that the strings overwhelmed uh you know Overwhelmed the guitar. My my favorite thing about it was the cordings on the acoustic guitars, and um, and I thought the strings overwhelmed everything. Yeah. So let's get scores. So John, one, and then Wayne. I gave it a four. I thought it really could have used some some harmony. It sounded. It just felt like it needed some some harmony in there. Yeah. Yeah. And I gave it a six. Like I said, I I I saw the good stuff in in this song. Uh, I just wish that maybe the strings weren't uh, weren't so so over overdone on it, but still liked it. All right, moving on. 
This is fourth song. This is the Daily Planet. Isn't the Daily Planet like the newspaper in Superman comics? Or is yeah, that... I thought like it's just maybe Superman or that's not Spider-Man, right? It's not Spider-Man. I think it might be Superman. No, Spider-Man's <laughs> the Daily Bugle. Okay, that's it, yeah. I always yeah. confuse planets and bugles. <laughs> <laughs> Lois Lane and Clark can't work at the Daily Planet, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, would, I would hope that that you didn't confuse planets with bugles because sad bugles seems like a sad really bugles weird a name. Really terrible name for a band. Yeah, horrible name for a band. Yeah. So, so and it would also ask... signify a military defeat. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so, so looking at the lyrics, uh, who's plastic Nancy? I don't Does know. Anybody, anybody know? Lost, that's where they lost me. Like the beginning okay. of the lyrics um, has that kind of, you know, life is real repetitious and boring, and 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 the mundane, you know, the mundaneness of it all. And and then he he lost me at Plastic Nancy. I had no idea what he was talking about after that. Yeah. Anybody else see that Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young could have done this song? Yeah, I could see that. There's a lot of these. I mean, some of these songs kind of have different feels of different bands. Like I, I, I you know, some Doors and some Moody Blues, um, and even like say Jefferson Airplane. Or is CSN? Yeah, I, thought it was, is that, I, saw, I thought of Jefferson Airplane when I heard this a little bit too. Yeah, I was just gonna say, is CSN not psychedelia enough? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. I, I never thought of them as that. So they would they would not be considered a contemporary of love, in other words. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I didn't I did not mean stylistically. Right. Right. All right. Who else wants to talk about Daily Planet? Other than I I I like it. It's one of my it's one of my favorite songs on the record. Um, but somebody else tell tell me something about Daily Planet. You know, and you said about the Wrecking Crew. I thought I really my play my favorite bass sound on the record, and I think that the drums are heavier um, rather than shuffling. So what I re- what I really like about this song is that the guitars, whereas in like the first the first song you have the guitar, the drums are kind of like just playing along. Yeah. Here you have the uh, and and trying to push things forward. In the, on Daily Planet, you have the um, the acoustics are. Uh, uh, are, are just providing kind of the shuffle to the song and pushing it forward. The song isn't really that necessarily unique. I thought I really love the arrangements. I thought there's a lot of sophisticated, it reminds me of like kind of a quintessential kind of like a sixties pop song that, you know, you, I, when I was at times when I heard this song and a couple others, I was imagining, you know, I could have, I could have seen uh, the love playing with the who and, um, and, you know, and Sid Barrett, Pink Floyd all in like kind of one hall. You know, and this is the one song that I kind of that reminded me of that. I, I really loved how the acoustics provide that shuffle, which is 
kind of a Pete Townsend thing, but the bass sound I thought was the thing that stuck out the most. Well, that would make sense considering Carol Kay is playing bass on this and Hal Blaine is playing drums on it. So yeah. that would make and sense. And the drums are heavier, yeah. yeah and yeah, the yeah. drums aren't just shuffling along. They're actually heavy and they're allowing the acoustics. They're very, very well arranged. Yeah, yeah, agreed. All right, let's get some scores on this. So, uh, Wayne? I gave it an eight. This is one of my one of the, my favorite songs off the record. I, I did like the drums, particularly. I wrote it down in my notes in the in the verses. That kind of it kind of runs up towards the end of the verse, um, and uh, he's got this uh, he's got this great cadence in his voice. Uh, like I say, and I had the lyrics pretty good right up until Plastic Nancy showed up. <laughs> right, and I'm giving this a seven. And then John, your score? I give it a ten. All right, cool, cool. All right, here's number five song. This is Old Man. Dear old man, he'd seen most everything. Gave me a piece of good advice. Said it would do me well. I couldn't really tell until I had been loving you. Things are not so strange I can see more clearly Suddenly I found my way I know the old man would laugh He spoke of love sweet So if you figured that the vocals sound a little differently That is because Brian McLean is also handling the lead vocals On the song he wrote And so, so there's a lot of there's a lot of um, lyrics that I don't quite understand, John. Any any idea what the tiny ivory ball and the small brown leather book that he's talking about in in here, or should I just should I just interpret that on face value that it's a tiny ivory ball and a and a small brown leather book? I think a lot of times I think this thing um, it was like. I think that like when I when I thought about this uh, about this record, I think that a lot of times with the words, I I, I know it's, it's interesting because I forgot. Oh, Wayne said the first time he listened to it, he, it took him a couple times and three times and four times. And what I always thought about the um, about Forever Changes, what I always really loved about this record is that things weren't necessarily things were very fluid in their meaning, and that's not just the the words. But even in the arrangements, because a lot of times things don't happen. The exi- they don't. You have not. You don't have verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, right. chorus. breakdowns at different points, and that's kind of what I thought with the words. I never. I even never even thought much about. Like I, they almost don't mean. I don't even know what what they mean. You know, and I. And it's almost like it's almost thing is like it's like. In listening to this thing, I always thought I got to hold back. I got to suspend my desire to find what the meaning is here. And just kind of like let it all, it, it's just a fluid thing. Like a, you think of like a, a, you know, it's like kind of like some uh, molecules that are just kind of like floating around in a way, you know? So I, I, the words, I never, I had no idea what it means, honestly. Another way to put it, I have no idea what the words are. <laughs> so yeah. I take it you're not a lyric guy, John. I am a lyric guy my, myself, but what I'm like, like to me, this record is, doesn't necessarily it's there's an oblique quality about it yeah 
So I just say, I think in this in this particular record, it's almost like a bunch of spitting out of a bunch of different images and parts of things. And and I just and, and and when you combine it with the music, it is it is something that forever changes. It's almost like not really one meaning. And the music it fits with this music. I think sometimes I hear stuff like that and I don't. I'm not a big fan. But in this yeah. case, I, I I do like that approach. So so going back to your uh, arrangement. Uh discussion because you were like I, I don't know who made the arrangements the one note that i've got on here is even though brian wrote this song the arrangement certainly seems like the rest of the album so going to your point yeah. of you know it doesn't have that you know verse chorus verse type of mentality so I, I was wondering if did everybody buy into what arthur was trying to accomplish here or was that production work that was kind of outside of Arthur. I guess that's that's the the the, the big question that I've got for, for I think there was probably a more uh, emphasis on production that was maybe even outside of the band and probably within the band. I mean they're very talented. I thought with yeah. this um I think that the interesting thing about this this song was first off the first thing that, that struck me is there's a song on White Light, White Heat Development Underground album that uh, Here She Comes Now and the opening part is musically like that. I thought, oh, I wonder if Lou Reed actually listened to this record and came up with that opening and used turned it into uh, Here She Comes Now. And but I thought that the, at around one one minute and about twenty seconds, one twenty five, there's a really cool cadence in the pacing of the vocals. And I think with and so I thought, and because it is, at times you're seeing similarities in that kind of pacing where they they're they they'll they'll have a, a, a couple words and then there'll be a pause and a couple words so lyrically i think i always think that the words here are almost it's almost an instrument in a, in a way you know it's played with an interesting pause so that's why i thought about this thing so it might be there's a unifying what you're saying is about a unifying kind of a kind of an overarching kind of like musical sensibility i thought even the delivery of the vocals here there was a at, like at about the 120 or could have been or you know it's it's there's this they, they do up with pacing that is very unique and it's, it's particular to the whole to the band as a whole yeah you know, rather than just one person to me it seems like yeah i can totally see that all right let's get let's get some scores on this so john your score old man i gave five okay and i gave this a three and then wayne i gave it a one it, i had high hopes for when the maracas come in and then his voice gets like I've already said, I, Brian McLean's voice doesn't have it. Ha, it lacks uh, the uniqueness of Arthur Lee, and it had a little too much Tiny Tim in it. Um, and <laughs> I really, I knew it was my, I knew it was my least favorite song because it ends suddenly, and there was always this sense of happiness when it did, and I was like, that's not good. That's not a good sign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. It is on. the most dated of the instrumentations on the album, I think. It reminds me of a period of time. It doesn't transcend a period of time. It does. It is reminiscent of a period of definitely of a period of time. Yeah, I can see that. All right, let's move on. This is uh, the red telephone. Life goes on here, day after day. I don't know if I am living or if I'm supposed to be. Sometimes my life is so eerie And if you think I'm happy Paint me yellow 
So do we look at this song as a protest song? Uh, I did. Um, at least at least the first verse. I actually wrote that down in my in my notes. I, I thought there was some Vietnam protest going on. And like I say, the red phone always reminds me of like the president, you know, the one that he calls Russia with. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess the, the legend on this song was that the house that the members of Love lived in had a red telephone. And yet I see no correlation between a red telephone and most of this. Unless, unless again, you're, you're looking at that from, uh, you know, the red, the red phone is like the, the, uh, the button to launch the nuclear weapons. I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I would say, I would say the, the, the lyrics at the end of the song are more protest song to me. Um, you know, the freedom is refrained at the end of the song and, you know, we haven't even talked about how Arthur Lee is black. And so, yeah. you know, does that make the, the whole paint me white lyric at the end of the song, you know, that much more powerful? I mean, the, the lyric is sometimes my life is so eerie and you, and if you think I'm happy, paint me white. And then the background is like yellow and I'm like, okay. Um, so, yeah, I, I that's what I was thinking too. I thought I thought it was in reference to uh, to his own background, and maybe you know it's interesting because I, I think he was a uh, you know an outsider playing the society in every way. You know, I'm sure in in his own you know if he was a uh, you know he probably was an outsider with when it came to white black you know in any any way. I mean, it's just like really a, kind of a, a iconoclastic character, and I thought this was a kind of a there is a kind of a contempt for society in some ways. And, you know, I don't need power when I'm hypnotized, look in my eyes, you know, yeah. you know, and it's like, I think that he's, you know, it is kind of a thing where it's almost like at times I always thought that like that people that kind of dive into the imagination, it's like, it was like, it's the Willy Wonka song, you know, it's like you have to go into imagination and it's almost like in some ways, it's not just that you're, that you just have these, uh, you know, childlike dreams or the set i think oftentimes it it is kind of the res uh, kind of almost a healthy or a, the only response to like being disgusted with everything around you and that's kind of the song that i thought this this was about you talking about their the the lyrics of they're locking them up today they're throwing away the key kind of got a little oompa loompa thing going on over there yeah no no i mean i mean the song pure imagination or about people the idea of people just like yeah. you know you yeah. can reside in the world of imagination rather than the world of reality because the world of imagination is saying you could make up your own your own your own reality in a way. So I think I believe in magic. Why? Because it's so quick. I don't need power when I'm hypnotized. I thought yeah. those kind of things. I thought you know, and I feel real phony when my name is Phil or was that Phil? You know, I think oftentimes the idea of even naming ourselves and providing kind of a rational explanation for who we are is uh, is something that I think that not necessarily that, and I'm not trying to read too much into it. I think that's kind of his sensibility. I get I get the feeling. Yeah. I totally dig this song. This is a good song. Um, so I gave this a 10. And uh, Wayne, what was your score? I gave it a 9. I, I, I Like I say, I, I agree with you. I, I like the structure. I love a good protest song. And I felt like that end, that eerie chanting at the end was very much uh, part of that protest. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, to, totally get that too. And John, your score? I gave it a nine. And I, when I remember when I first heard this song, going back to what some of the bands that I was imagining them as being, you know, akin to, I thought of Sid Barrett. I thought the call and responses where there's words that are existing almost on top of one another and uh, the cadence and almost the kind of a sneering responses, I thought that reminded me a little bit of, of the early Pink Floyd. And I thought around the 140, there was a really beautiful, I thought it was like, there's a psychedelic quality about it where it was, uh, it was just a very, you know, I, I, one of my favorites. And the acoustics, I think are just great on this song. So, so I gave it a, a nine. Cool. All right. All right. Moving on to the seventh song, super long title. Maybe the people would be the times or between Clark and Hildale. You think it obsolete Then you go back across the street Yeah Did you guys find the song's tempo just a little too close to Alone Again? Or uh, and and then also once it started to pick up, I totally saw this as kind of the the sequel to A House Is Not a Motel song again with that tempo. Or yeah. am I just? Uh, I just got a real familiarity. It sounded yeah. like a couple of the songs of the other songs. So I guess it it lost points on originality because I really like the drums and the horns together uh, and then there's this really cool acoustic guitar solo that they do at the bridge that I really like too but I, 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 I can see it felt it felt too close to some of the other stuff and kind of lost points for lack of originality yeah yeah I dig the I didn't dig the horn section as much on this one either um, and especially the one part where Arthur is kind of matching it with his um, his do do that he does, you know, trying to keep up with the strings as well. I just, um, yeah. yeah. I also, you you going back to my earlier comment about the Moody Blues. This song sounds very Justin Hayward to me, and he's the the lead singer of Moody Blues. And maybe it was just because the the strings I felt were a little overpowering on this this particular song too. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I thought, you know, actually, I like the horns and the acoustic guitar, and I thought the call and responses with the horns were interesting. I thought the song, I mean, what I liked the most is I thought it was, a, and, and there are some musical similarities, but, you know, you always wonder, is it too similar to something else, or maybe that thing is just is similar to this, because maybe this is a song that just happened to be appear at this point in the record, whereas some other song appeared earlier, you know. But I did like yeah. the, the the verse. Crowds of people standing everywhere across the street. I'm at this la this I'm at this laugh affair, you know. And I thought that that was a there is a, a bit of urban paranoia there. I just thought that, or just paranoia, societal maybe paranoia, you know, the idea of uh, being in crowds and stuff. And I thought, which is what what I, I what resonated. I think it was, um, you know, it was uh, uh, 
musically one of, not one of my favorite records songs on the record. Yeah. But I thought also there was a looseness in the rhythms that I found. I, I, I didn't mind, but I didn't think it was necessarily, it sounded like they could have done a couple more takes. Yeah. Uh, where exactly is Clark and Hildale? Anyone? Somewhere in I California? No yeah, <laughs> I don't either. I got nothing. All right. Yeah. Um, all right. Anything else we want to talk about? Maybe the world or the maybe the people would be the times. Yeah, you know the thing is, it's funny. I was, um, I was thinking is, luckily they didn't demand that this be the single off the record because I could see people on the radio going, maybe the people would be the times or between Clark and Hildale, and like, I'm not going to play this too right. long. Right. Yeah. All right. Let's get some scores. So, John. I give it a four. And then I'm matching your four. And then uh, Wayne? Uh, five. Okay. Moving on to the eighth song. This is Live and Let Live. Confused with "Live and Let Die." That's a whole other, whole other song. And Clark and Hildale. Clark and Hildale is a block on the Sunset Strip. Oh, there you go. The power of Google. <laughs> Look at that. All right. Um, so I'm just going to throw this out before we start talking about this song. So collectively, this is our least favorite song. And um, I got to tell you, so this. Wayne, you, you know, you give me you give me a ration of crap because of my uh, my uh, love for for Beavis type jokes, and uh, the first lyric on this is, "Oh, the snot has caked against my pants; it has turned into crystal." So yeah, I, I had to I had to actually look at the lyrics. I'm like, did he just say snot? I so, I wrote down snot, gross. Not sure I can recall snot being referred to in a song before no no uh, and and it totally reminded me of the part of the movie the golden child with eddie murphy do you guys remember that horrible movie yes. uh, i don't know i don't know that one so his his guide is picking his nose and wiping it on himself and eddie murphy is saying so you're just gonna let that booger freeze up on your jacket like that Get that booger off your jacket before it freezes and you scratch yourself. That's kind of, that's where my mind went with this. And I'm like, if this is where my mind is going with this particular song, you're going to have to talk, talk me out of this not being my least favorite song. You know, the thing is, I actually liked that first verse because I thought, oh, the snot is caked against my pants. It has turned into crystal. And then the next is a kind of a comforting image of there's a bluebird sitting on a branch. And then the next line is, I guess I'll Shoot. take my pistol. <laughs> right. And so I thought, I thought there was a, I kind of liked that there was. Um, because he's on my land. Yeah, maybe. But yeah. I thought I, I did like the, um, 
I like the, uh, uh, I've seen you out sitting on the couch. I recognize your artillery. I've seen you many times before once yeah. when I was in India. I thought there was an interesting, I mean, I, I did, I did appreciate the, the words to this one, but I, uh, but, you know, I, I thought at the same time, I, uh, you know, I, I, and I'd like the stomp of it. I do think that the words were dated and trip the cadence, there's a trippiness to it. And I think that that was, there's a little bit date makes it dated. I mean, I think maybe this song might've been, you know, maybe it would have gotten a higher score if I would have listened to it in 1968 or 67, but I haven't listened to it much later. Yeah. Yeah. This is my least favorite score. Um, so Wayne, how about you? What's your, what's your score on this? I gave it a two. Um, I did like some of the lyrics. I did like how he's, you know, he's going to shoot a bluebird, which is about as sweet a thing as you can find because he's on his land. And then he kind of switches it up and, and talks about when he was an Indian, which we all know what happened to their land. So a little bit of turnabout. Uh, But that, that that vocal, you know, the, the, he changes his voice kind of, um, which on some other, when he does it some ways and it works, and then I didn't like it at all on this one. Yeah. And Snot just grossed me out. I could. Yeah. And then, uh, John, your score? Uh, I give it a three. Okay. So collectively, average score of two. So our least favorite song on the record. So moving on, this is The Good Humor Man, He Sees Everything. I think I'm just going to analyze this song at face value. The title references the ice cream man, right? Good humor, man. Face value, huh? I'm, I'm looking at it just purely face value. Okay. I don't know. It, so, so, so tell me what the lyrics mean on this, how, how this matches up with the title. Is it just seem to think that this was a, a catchy title or a fun title and we're just going to go with that? I think the, like, the interesting thing about the good humor man and the ice cream man is you think about a person that drives in a vehicle and is basically like, you know, is like selling to uh, its kind of packaging of innocence because it connotes summer. It connotes driving through and seeing various kids. And I thought that I just thought it was like from I like actually the, the perspective of seeing the world from the eyes of a good humor man. And because it also, you see, he's seeing all these things, hummingbirds hum. Why do they hum? Little girls wearing pigtail in the morning in the morning. So you just, there's a, I thought la da 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 was at times there is a, it's, it's, there's a sincere a way of the, the delivery of that la da 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 is sincere. However, I think there could be also, there could be a bit of a, of a sneering thing because I, I, I like the perspective, I guess what I'm trying to say. And I think that, yeah. and the idea that the good humor man is sometimes, I think he's also has a good, he's always had, had, he had a sharp wit about him, Arthur Lee. And I think that that's probably like, he might literally see it as the good humor man, a man with good humor who sees the world. 
Right. In a way that's okay. dealing with the world. See, and this is why we have our guest on, Wayne, because that was a perspective that I did not have on this particular song. In fact, after those la-da-da's, you know, the, the music interlude that happens after it, not, not, not my favorite. That's kind of why I gave it a, a lower score than, you know, I get to see everybody's scores in advance, John. So uh, you, you and I are seeing this song very differently. So I gave it a two. Yeah. And uh, what was what was the score that you gave it? I gave it an eight. Yeah. I mean, it is a flower power, kind of has a flower power quality about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's but I, I um, have written, I have those word, exact words written down. It's a little too much summer love, flower power. Yeah, and I think that is a flower power quality about it. But I, uh, I, uh, I like the perspective. I like that that perspective. Yeah. All right. And then Wayne, what was your score on that? Uh, three. Okay. Moving on, second to last song. This is Bummer in the Summer. I was switching so and turning, it was pretty hard to learn that everyone I saw was just another part of me. But you can go ahead if you want to, cause nobody's got no papers on you. No, baby, it's just a falsehood. And this is very Dylan-esque to me. That's 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 the first thing that I wrote down was Dylan-esque. But it's a nice little rocker. Um, somebody get me started on this, uh, get or get us started on this, since uh, I'm sure, like a Dylan song, I'm I know that there's a deeper meaning to the lyrics that maybe I'm not seeing on the face value that would give this even more power than it already has? Well, musically, this was probably my favorite track. And I and if I had to, if I did my score again, I, it would, I don't know that it would be my favorite one on the record, but it would probably, it would be much higher than what I gave it. Um, but his Jimi Hendrix doing a Bob Dylan impression singing is what brought it down. Because musically, I really like it. It's got this great acoustic strum and, and the snare, and then it, it's just got a bluesy feel and then they do this like say that electric lead over the over the acoustics and it has this real fast pace this real cool i mean like almost like stomp thing but it, and, the, and the lyrics these are a little more straightforward as far as um as his lyrics go but ultimately it just kept being drugged down by it, it he he sounds a lot like Jimi hendrix on this Almost, but almost like Jimi Hendrix, all trying to do his best Bob Dylan impression. Hmm. Interesting. I just, I just got the Bob Dylan impression, but that's that's cool. John, what do you, what do you got to say on this song? I thought it was kind of probably the most badass song on the record, and I loved the guitar picking lead. I thought that was really cool. I thought his cadence was great, and it remind it's like real. I like the driving qualities of it. It reminds me a bit of the Who and the Thirteen Floor Elevators and Bob Dylan, and uh, I thought musically it's probably like not as interesting as the other ones. But I, I but I liked a lot of it, a lot about it. But kind of a, a, at heart, the music was was maybe less interesting than it. But I love the guitar pick and lead, which gave me uh, made me want to listen to it a bunch of times. You know. Yeah, agree. And I, I, his I delivery is great. I love the cadence and the delivery. Yeah, 
I do like that. I do like the guitar work in this as well. All right, let's get some scores. So I gave this an eight. Wayne? Ah, I gave it a seven, and if I could go back, it probably it, it would definitely be higher. Yeah. And then John? I gave it a seven. All right. All right. So we are now at the last song. This is called You Set the Scene. Anyone else get a uh, five o'clock world vibe at the beginning of this song? Uh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, I mean, I have to go back. I, maybe it is, yeah. Which is a great song in itself. Um, yeah, totally. But, but this song is really a suite or a medley of songs, right? Because uh, it, it does change. It definitely does change some tempo uh, a couple different times during this. And considering that it's... Uh, what it's like almost seven minutes long right um and the lyrics is this another protest song i got that i mean uh there's some stuff about you know there's a private in my boat line but there's also i think the one that most made me feel uh protest is the uh there's a man who can't decide if he should fight for what his father thinks is right um which was obviously you know his gener- baby boom generation went to war. It was a little more of a just cause. And uh, so the sons of those guys were sent to Vietnam, which was not so much. I wonder if it's that or, you know, going back to my my original conversation about how Botnik had brought in the wrecking crew and then the rest of the band kind of got their act together I wonder if part of the lyrics, especially for the first verse where he's talking about everything I've seen needs rearranging. And, you know, he ends that particular verse with, do you like the part you're playing? Um, I wonder if that is a message from Arthur to his band about just getting their act together. Um, I don't know. I, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to overanalyze correct Wayne. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to piece the story together and and uh, maybe maybe I'm reading way too much into that. But yeah, that, that, that that's kind of what I was uh, I was uh, gathering here. Yeah. You know, I, I thought like I mean, literally, you set the scene scene being uh, could be a, a situation. It could be even the and if you look at it as artifice, you could be a scene in a film. It could be a, a, a part of a story. So I always thought that you create this story. I mean, and I don't want to, uh, I, I, I can't presume to, to know what's going on here or think what's going on, but you think about it as people go through these situations and they go through scenes and they don't realize they're going through scenes. And sometimes you think they're going through some kind of authentic experience, but it's just a scene that's been laid out for you. So that's why I thought like the idea of scene is a uh, you set you create this scene 
And then where are you walking? I've seen you walking. Have you been there before? Walk down your door, your doorsteps. You'll take some more steps. What did you take them for? I think that's why I think I think what I I I, I really the words is the words are maybe not in terms of image are the most interesting, but I think in terms of a concept. And I thought that the idea of having it, you know, that that he is, you know, questioning why he is going through these things. You know, you wonder why are you taking a step forward? Why do we walk forward? Why are we going in this direction? Why are we going in that direction? And you start seeing like, you know, packs of people moving in a direction. You see behaviors repeating. And I was, I think he's just questioning the repetitions of behaviors, whether it's going to war, whether it's people that go to walk a certain way, whether it's people that follow other people walking in a certain situation, whether it's people that enter and find themselves in a scene, you know, and, you know, and, and don't know why they're there, you know, so. John, I'm glad I'm not the only one who overanalyzes songs. So that's great. <laughs> we are, we are Plus kindred the arrangements of the cadence. Yeah. Yeah. We are kindred spirits as it relates to that. There was one lyric that I thought, you know, for 1967 seemed to really uh, a little bit on the uh, um, not scandalous side, but but, it, it, you know, if you just look at it again at face value, the, the lyric of there are people wearing friends who will screw you up, but they would rather screw you down. I kind of felt like that was a that was a little edgy for 1967, wasn't it? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess. Yeah, because I, I do I don't know. I mean, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I wouldn't even know what, the, uh, how it would, how it'd be referred to. There is a, there is a toughness about, about his words that you just don't hear. Like, and that's why I thought it interesting. This record, as psychedelic kind of masterpieces of '67. This one, Pet Sounds, and and and, and Sergeant Pepper. If you compare those three, there's definitely stuff on this stuff that is much darker than than the Beatles, who are. All they existed were in the, why I like this record and why I like this song, I guess it points to why I really like this record, why I love this record, is that Arthur Lee is, creates realistic situations where someone could have a snot caked on their, on their, their pants. <laughs> and that's not as often, I know friends of mine that are in Los Angeles that are homeless or on drugs or meth, and they have snot caked on, I know they have snot caked on their pants. They have no, they, have no, they don't have a, a napkin to reach for. Usually I, I just, it's a reoccurring thing, you know? And so I think he mixes kind of the gritty realistic stuff. Whereas on the Beatles on Sgt. Pepper, is there anything that is, that, 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 that that's points to reality on that record? You know, <laughs> there's no dark reality at all. It's almost like you get yeah. these guys who are just like playing on this little loopy trip and they were just like having fun and whoever they were doing, jumping around with Peter Pan or whatever they were going, you know? Right. Right. I mean, this has a definitely a much more of a punk rock sensibility than Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get some scores. So, John? My computer died, and I don't remember what I gave this one because I had to plug it. This is, this is your top score. Okay, that's the 11. Okay, cool. That's I did the have 11. the 11. Okay. Yeah, and then Wayne? But I like this record because it's a microcosm of, of the record I really, I really like. Yeah. And that and that's exactly what I this is uh, my second favorite that I give it a 10. Um, I think a lot of the other things that they did, they did it better on this song. And like I say, it has I felt had some elements of protest. Um, it did have it does. It has darker, grittier, like he said, lyrics as compared to the other 
uh, kind of even the, the 60s, that psychedelia, that this later 60s summer of love stuff, there's a little bit more uh, dark reality, like you said. And uh, I, I gave, like I say, second, my second favorite song. Yeah, this is my favorite song on the record. So um, any guesses on uh, just based <laughs> off based off of our uh, our scoring? Any guesses what top pick is going to be? I think that's it. I think we yeah, just talked about it. it. Yep, yep, this is it. Um, all right, so let, let's uh, let's look at our scoring, and I'll tell you what our top five is. So I uh, just talked about the first one. Our second favorite is Red Telephone with an average score of 9.33, followed by The Daily Planet at 8.33. And Bummer in the Summer got a 7.33 average score. Followed by Alone Again or that got an average score of seven. And that's mostly my doing because I gave it a nine. So that's pretty solid top five, I think, right, for this record? Yeah. I'm going to have to now order those records and listen to those songs in order now. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Let's do a little sequencing. All right. Well, did did we cover everything on Forever Changes? Did we miss anything? Well, the only thing I'd say that I, I read it wasn't a commercial success, which I, I know it was critically. Every, I mean, uh, everybody, you know, Cream and Rolling Stone and NME, they all loved it. And it, but it, yet it wasn't a, which I'm, I'm surprised it wasn't a commercial hit, because it has, you know, many of the elements of 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 what was going on in the music industry at the time. I found I just found that odd. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, to me, it's like it's the kind of thing where I just I really like a record that I've listened to. Even as I was listening to this thing, I kept on. I always hear little things, little different things, you know. And it's a kind of like I don't know. There's like a, you know, the, the Beatles refer to a kaleidoscope on that album of Sgt. Pepper, which is actually not even near one of my favorite Beatles albums. But I think this has a kaleidoscopic quality about it that as you turn the thing, it just shifts forms in a way. It's almost a shape shifting record, which I really like. And it's like not just to be. Uh, you know, he said that this, he. I remember he said this is his Mona Lisa, and I always thought it's more like a Jackson Pollock in a way, because it's just like little things you can notice and little little reoccurring patterns, and 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 that's why I really love the records. Every time I hear it, I I've not memorized. I've never memorized this record. I still don't know. I had to go back and listen to this thing to figure out why I liked it, because I always hear it differently. Yeah. I did love the I did love where the title came from as he was recounting a story he heard from a friend and the girl says you said you'd love me forever and he said love it. you say forever changes baby yeah <laughs> all right so john remind our guests where they can find all your happenings where can they find you and uh, where can they find sad planets well, there's a Sad Planets Facebook page right now. It's facebook.com forward slash Sad Planets. There is sweetapplesongs.com. And, uh, you know, the, you can just search this. Uh, Death of Samantha, I think, is uh, a, Death of Samantha.com. I mean, yeah, I have coververde.com. I mean, there's like too many websites. I feel like I'm like financing GoDaddy at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. So last question for you, John. We ask all of our guests now. So who do you know that I don't know who would want to come join us on this podcast to talk about one of their favorite records? Uh, 
And you can't say Doug Gillard because what have you? Uh, what about what about Bob Bob Pollard? He wouldn't want to go, would he? Or does he? Does he? He don't like to talk much about stuff. He doesn't I, like he, to dude, talk. Dude, he loved it. He he doesn't do a lot of interviews. In fact, uh, the last couple of interviews that I've seen with quote unquote guided by voices, it's been Doug. Yeah. Um, you know what? Can I find? Let me think about it. Can I get it back to you then? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. We love I have our referrals. Yeah, but I don't know. Like, I, it's like okay, like Jay. He's really good about music, and he could figure it out, like why he likes a record. But you'd almost have to be there with him because he, like, he wouldn't communicate necessarily verbally. He'd just show you how how cool it is to air drum to this record, and it's kind of like, well, you know, really, you know I mean, if you're doing like a video, uh, you know, thing, it might work. You know, Jay would right. be really good. That he's like because we've talked about a lot of different. We, I mean, we always talk about different records in detailed ways. In the same way that I do with with Doug and I and stuff like that, and um, but I think that's kind of the, the, the I think Jay would be great. I mean, he's really great with music, but the problem is he doesn't have you know he'd rather just air drum for you. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't that doesn't equate to good podcasting. Maybe if we did a uh, if we did a, a YouTube channel for that, maybe that would be yeah. different. But yeah, all right. Well, but I'll, uh, I'll put together some names. I can let you know then. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. John, this, this has been a lot of fun. We Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, we appreciate you 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 turning us on to to something new because, um, you know, like I said, my familiarity with love was was not real great, and um, yeah. so yeah, you, you definitely turned us on to to some new stuff, and and that's what this this uh, podcast is all about. Oh yeah, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was like it was fun to just kind of break things down in a way that I don't really, because I try not to even like with words or anything. It's like, like this record was almost hard to even think in terms of words or think in terms of parts. It's almost like it is this kind of shape shifting thing. And I like that's so for me to break down a record that is in I've listened to for so many years and not really, not that I've not thought about, but I've thought about it in a kind of a it's an abstract record in its own way, you know? Yeah, yeah. All right, just as a reminder to our listeners, so we're on Instagram using the hashtag Records Revisited Podcast. Man in the Facebook page, please go check that out at Records Revisited Podcast. Uh, please also review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, Podomatic, wherever you can find our podcast. So thanks for listening. Please go support the arts. Go to a live show, buy a t-shirt of the band, buy a record visit a record store and not just on record store day we are records revisited and we are out out out